Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and I'm so glad you've downloaded the second episode. It uh, means a lot to me, so thank you very much. Last episode, we met Rayford Steele, an airline pilot flirting with a midlife crisis as well as his senior flight attendant, Hattie Durham, and Cameron Buck Williams, a journalist for the Global Weekly magazine. These three find themselves amidst a global catastrophe when they discover that not only are fellow passengers on this airplane missing, but all across the planet, people have mysteriously vanished, leaving their clothes and other non-organic parts of their bodies behind. This week, we'll follow Rayford home to learn the fate of his wife and son, and, well, mostly hang out around O'Hare while Buck tries to get out. Also, content warning for self-harm and suicide in Chapter 3, because this book gets kind of dark really, really fast. Chapter 3 begins as the plane is landing at O'Hare. Because of massive congestion, they're going to have to land about two miles away from any terminal and walk the rest. Uh, Buck gives Hattie his card and phone number, uh, promising to get in touch if he hears from her family. Uh, He also asks the elderly woman in his row if she'd like to keep the jacket and hat he finds in the overhead luggage compartment, since it's likely one of the few things she'll have to remember her husband by. When deplaning, Buck volunteers to jump out of the slide first. He does a very bad job landing on his shoulders and tumbling all the way down, and eventually smashing his head on the concrete, giving him a bleeding head injury, but it's not too serious. Just just a terrible omen. If you're the passenger on this plane, like you've already gone through one traumatic like mass disappearance, and then you watch this moron leave a puddle of blood on the tarmac right before you do plane. Like, pretty cool. Good going, Buck. Uh, I do love it, though. It shows that despite how cool and well-traveled Buck makes himself out to be, he's still kind of a dingus. Rayford, meanwhile, is the last off the plane along with Hattie and his co-pilot Christopher. They're offered a ride by one of the shuttles transporting the elderly, but Ray declines it on principle. Chris, on the other hand, happily takes the ride despite Ray chewing him out over it. Hattie and Ray walk back together. When they finally reach the terminal, Ray finds it in chaos. Tons of frightened and angry people are everywhere, there's no food or newspapers left, and people have just begun straight up stealing from stores whose employees have vanished. Ray goes and finds some secure phone lines, which I think are just for airline employees, and he gets in line to make a call. He also learns there's a small number of helicopter rides that will fly airline staff out to hospitals and police departments. Ray waits to make a phone call, fully expecting no one to answer. While he's in line, Ray watches the news from some of the TVs posted around this flight center. In maybe the most upsetting detail of the novel, they show footage from a woman giving birth. It describes the banter between this excited father and this mother who's just in in the pains of childbirth. And then there's just a terrible scream. Uh, CNN (laughs) takes the liberty of slowing the footage down so they can see her stomach flatten, just instantly barren. It's just so deeply viscerally upsetting. I don't know how that image of a pregnant woman just suddenly delivering only a placenta just didn't stick with me for the rest of my life. Uh, another video shows a funeral where three of the pallbearers disappear, causing the others to drop the casket, which pops open, revealing that the corpse has also vanished. Watching these videos makes Ray certain he'll never see his wife again, but when he finally gets through to his home, answering machine, he leaves a message anyway. It's not all doom and gloom, though. Ray remotely checks his messages and learns that his college-aged daughter, Chloe, has called home after the events of the day. He tries to reach her dorm at Stanford, but doesn't have any luck. Ray checks his mail slot at the airport and finds an envelope from his wife. Apparently, she'd been reading a marriage book that advised her to send her partner little gifts from time to time, uh, so he picks that up and, and keeps it with him. He then tracks Hattie down to make sure she can get on one of these helicopters he learned about to get back to the suburbs. He fights through the crowd, links up with her, 
and they hurry to catch the chopper before it leaves. And while they're on the run, Hattie mentions that something happened to Christopher, their, their co-pilot. The conversation actually goes, uh, Hattie says, wasn't it awful about Christopher? And Ray goes, what about him? You really don't know. And then Ray has this really like grouchy boomer moment where he thinks about how he hates that young people never get to the point of conversation. They're always just like playing around with it. And I think that's that's an excellent characterization, like just showing that he is definitely like kind of an older, grouchy midlife crisis dude. So they reach the, the chopper before Hattie can tell him what exactly happened, and they're able to leave the airport. There's no room, so Hattie has to sit on Ray's lap. And he thinks about how just a few hours ago this would have been like kind of his ideal scenario, and now he just feels awful. The other passengers in the chopper are talking amongst themselves, and they mention a Christopher Smith, who who is the same name as Ray's co-pilot. Ray asks what happened to him, and they say that Chris was among the many suicides that happened today, Chris having slit his wrists after learning his sons vanished and his wife was killed in a car accident. Like, Lehay and Jenkins do not shirk from some of the more gruesome visions of the tribulation, and I think that's probably sort of the, the point. I mean, obviously a global catastrophe would be just bloody and scary, but that's that's sort of a theme of the franchise, is always, like, not shying away from the fear and, like, terrible things that would happen in these circumstances, which I... I mean, kind of assume is sort of sort of an evangelization point. They want you to be afraid, so you will you will take their ideology. Ray considers the fact that if his daughter had also disappeared, he probably wouldn't have anything to live for also. He reflects on the fact that he hadn't been very active in his family life anyway, and he regrets ever having feelings for Hattie. We switch perspectives over to Buck, who goes into an airline club lobby to connect his computer to a modem. He downloads some more work emails and receives two from his editor, Steve Plank. The first message is addressed to all magazine employees, telling them not to come to New York and that they have to take care of their families first, and then start cooking up some theories as to why people have disappeared. The second email tells Buck to ignore the first, and to get to New York as soon as possible. Money is no object. The next part of this message starts to hove into conspiracy theory territory. Buck's editor tells him that there are three different and important meetings in New York this month, and that he should keep abreast of their plans. The first is a Jewish nationalist conference that will be discussing a new world order government. The second is a conference of Orthodox Jews from across the diaspora that Steve thinks are rallying support to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The third is a conference of all major religious leaders in the world, uh, including weird fringe religions, I guess trying to found a one world religious order. I sincerely hope there's more detail to come because I desperately want to know the backstory behind, like, firstly, how everyone is totally cool with Jewish nationalists planning a new world order. Um, I mean, I don't know that much about various anti-Semite movements, but when somebody mentions that the Jews are getting together to create a singular government, it makes me think that maybe these authors, Lehay and Jenkins, have an ulterior motive. The second claim, which is also bananas, is that every major world religion is about to unite and create a singular order. So, I mean, I was only one in 1995, so I don't remember, but were the 90s like that dope that everyone just thought peace and, and world unity was on the horizon? Like that was a realistic thing? Because I don't think so. We can't get the hundreds of different Christian sects to agree on a single canon, let alone every major religion. That's It's just a crucial de detail that I really hope they, they expound on in the later series. Lastly, Steve mentions that Buck should look into a Romanian diplomat named Carpathia since he's speaking at the UN in a few weeks. Apparently he's becoming very popular and might be worth investigating. Steve says he lost a few family members and puts his money on the fact that whoever took them is going to want a huge ransom in return, which from an audience perspective is hilarious. 
I, who's going to be like, yeah, that was me. I stole everybody. And if you give me, I don't know, like what, $30 million, I'll teleport all your fetuses back. It'll be totally cool. It's just an, another example of the authors making everybody super duper naive. And I love it. The chapter closes with Buck's editor pleading for him to get in as soon as he can. Chapter 4 continues with Buck lost in the maelstrom of activity around O'Hare. A doctor comes by and volunteers to take care of his head wound free, calling it a rapture special. Buck gets a turn on the phone and reads his emails, one of which is from his boss's secretary, Marge Potter. Marge informs Buck that she was able to reach Hattie Durham's family and that they're all fine. She expresses how glad she is that Buck's okay, but makes the point that of the people who've disappeared, they were mostly children or, quote, very nice people, which I think that anyone who's a member of the LGBT community will get a real laugh out of. It is also revealed that Buck has a widowed father and married brother, but there's no word about them just yet. Uh, despite his mixed feelings, Buck is still pretty stoked about taking point on this assignment. While he waits in line at this airline service desk, he just sits down on the floor and starts uh, researching this diplomat, Nikolai Carpathia. Rayford is dropped off near his home in Arlington Heights and tries to hitchhike his way back. He wrestles with his feelings, knowing he'll probably return to an empty house. A woman driving by offers him a lift. They have a brief chat about who they may have lost, and she even offers to wait for Ray outside his house, which I thought was kind of touching. When they reach his home, Ray asks if he can do anything for her, and she responds by saying that he could pray for her. Ray is not much for praying, but says she can pray for him, which seems like a super rude thing to do for a person that just drove you home. Like, Ray, you could just at least at least lie. Like, say you will. Come on, man. When Ray crosses the threshold of his house, he knows immediately that something's wrong. The coffee that is set to start brewing at 6 a.m. is totally burned, and the Christian radio station Irene used for an alarm is blaring. His thoughts drift to his son and how he went to church with his mom even when Ray didn't. Uh, as he delays going upstairs, Ray wanders into the garage and notices his son's four-wheeler, snowmobile, and bike and feels another pang of regret that he didn't spend more time with his kid. Also, um, this kid is 12, Ray, and you bought him a snowmobile? That's the biggest red flag by far <laughs> I think we've seen from Ray. You, under no circumstances should you buy a 12-year-old a snowmobile. Back at the airport, Buck finds something on his hard drive, part of his interview with Dr. Rosenzweig in which Chaim recalls a meeting with this diplomat, Nikolai Carpathia. Despite only being a member of the lower house of the Romanian government, Carpathia impressed Rosenzweig with his charisma and sincerity. His main goal, like his, his pet cause, is global disarmament. Carpathia is described as being blonde and blue-eyed, quote, like the original Romanians who came from Rome before the Mongols affected their race, end quote, which seems like just like a weird gross parenthetical to throw in there like why is dr rosenzweig just casually racist against mongols i don't understand that at all anyway the main thing that impressed Chaim about carpathia is that despite being very intelligent fluent in several languages and a stand-up person when rosenzweig asked nikolai what the purpose of them meeting was nikolai asked only for rosenzweig's goodwill which he happily granted it's soon buck's turn at the help desk and the woman there is understandably exasperated the airport's going to close soon, and there's no flights into or out of the city in the near future. However, Buck shows her his special membership card, indicating that he's in the top 3% of flyers in the world, and asks that if he had unlimited resources, would she know of any way to get a flight to New York? Uh, and luckily she does, by way of a CD pilot who's definitely going to overcharge for his services during a catastrophe, but Buck is more than willing to take that chance. Uh, we switch perspectives back to Ray again, who has finally screwed up the courage to climb the stairs and check on his wife and son. As he climbs, he looks at the photographs on his wall, reminiscing about happier times, cursing himself for not being there for his family. 
He starts first with his son's room. He pulls back the blanket on his son's bed, revealing only his son's pajamas. And what I honestly thought was kind of a devastating detail, Raymond weeps because he he notices that his son is like he notices that his son's socks are left behind and that's something that his wife had been like harping on his son about like for not wearing socks to bed and it's i don't know that's such a a little intimate detail that i thought was was pretty good to add add to this emotional blow and another excellent bit of characterization is that on ray jr's nightstand is a picture of ray senior in his pilot's uniform but ray has written on it rayford steel captain pan continental airlines o'hare and it's only at this exact moment that Ray realizes that he's just the biggest D-bag in the world for autographing a picture for his own child. Uh, lastly, Ray enters the master bedroom, now in full-on self-loathing mode. He even describes how he deserves the emotional toll he's about to endure for being such a crappy husband over the past few years. Inevitably, he finds Irene's nightgown under the covers, along with her wedding ring next to the pillow, since she always slept with her face on her hand. This detail breaks Ray, and he loses it. After an unspecified amount of time, he opens the envelope she'd sent in the mail, and inside he finds two homemade cookies. Ray laments his terribleness again, takes off his uniform, and cries himself to sleep while clutching his wife's nightgown. <laughs> Chapters 3 and 4 do some real emotional heavy lifting, which I have to respect. We get the suicide of Ray's co-pilot along with the brutal revelation that his wife and son's belongings are just, are just there, and, and it's confirmation for Ray that he knows they're gone for good. LaHaye and Jenkins do a great job flooding us with these little details that you might notice if one day you came home and, you know, everyone you loved was gone, just the weird things you'd realize were missing or not right in your house, and all the regrets that you might have. It's pretty heavy, and I'm glad they don't pull any punches, but by far my favorite detail from these chapters is the inclusion of these three conferences that are going to discuss religious and political unification. Like, there's just so much that needs to happen before... That, that seems realistic, and I just want to live in that world where if somebody said, like, yeah, all the major world religions are going to get together, like, that wouldn't immediately be the biggest news ever. Like, it wouldn't just completely shut down every every news station because they'd be so, so impressed that everyone had finally got together on something. Uh, and I really hope we get some justification in the text for all these, these events, all these things coming together. So all in all, not particularly action-packed, but I do appreciate the character development they're doing. In our next segment, which I'm tentatively calling Apocrypha, we're going to dig into one, of, one aspect of rapture theology or dispensationalism and give it a slightly closer look. It occurs to me that some of you heathens may not actually have a good idea of what the rapture is, so let's jump back in time a little bit to understand the rapture's origins. Firstly, the word rapture comes from Latin, either raptura or raptus, meaning seizure or carrying off. Other translations understand the word to mean being caught up. Like in the book, the idea is that on Jesus' first return to earth, the rapture itself, he will gather his followers, both living and dead, and physically remove them from the planet so they can live in heaven. The brand of rapture theology espoused in the Left Behind franchise became popular in the 70s largely because of a book by Hal Lindsey titled The Late Great Planet Earth, which does a similar thing to the Left Behind franchise where it tries to use events of the present to anticipate what was going to happen in the end times, similar to the thing I did in the first episode where, where I took that interpretation of scripture and applied it to current events. Uh, Orson Welles apparently narrated the film adaptation, which is pretty wild. But if you go back a century and a half, you start getting into the works of several Christian scholars, many of whom were from different branches of Christianity, 
all getting at the idea of Christ's return for his people, leaving the remaining population of the planet to suffer the apocalyptic tribulation, which would last seven years before the final return of Christ to Earth, where he would establish a thousand-year kingdom, at the end of which Satan would finally be truly destroyed and the faithful would return to live in heaven. Of these scholars, John Nelson Darby is the most important in spreading the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, as, as a side note, if you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goal goes, you should just go to the rapture page on Wikipedia. Uh, honestly, that's where I get most of my information is Wikipedia. And look at the charts detailing Christian millennial rapture teachings because each one has a different timeline of when the rapture or second coming takes place or whether or not a seven-year tribulation actually occurs and where this a thousand-year millennia of Christ's reign actually fits in. They all sort of jump around. There's at least six that I can remember for this project, I'm hoping to stick only to premillennialist understandings of the rapture, since that's how LeHay and Jenkins interpret it. But you really ought to take a look on that Wikipedia page because it gives you a good idea of just how many different opinions everybody has on this concept. Um, those who do believe in the uh, the kind of rapture that that we see in Left Behind use several different passages from Scripture to make their claims. So we have 1 Corinthians 15. This is 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality uh, so especially with the um the references to in the twinkling of an eye and at the last trumpet um that's people interpret that as like a sudden quick a rapture of being taken up into heaven uh, and also we get the, we all, we all, we shall not all sleep, uh, but we shall be changed. Uh, we also have Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Many Christians interpret that as, as a promise that the Lord will protect them from the tribulation and take them away before the real suffering begins. Uh, Wikipedia also has a list of five tenets of the rapture that are widely accepted, uh, drawing from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So firstly, those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are dead. Secondly, the dead in Christ will resurrect first. Thirdly, the living and the resurrected dead will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, fourth, the rapture will occur during the parousia, those who are alive and remain unto the coming, parousia in Greek, of the Lord shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and lastly, fifth, the meeting with the Lord will be permanent, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Um, so pretty straightforward, five tenets. Um, both living and dead will be taken up bodily into the clouds, um, and they're going to be with the Lord forever, which is kind of a nice thought. So that's going to take us to the end of our show. Chapters 3 and 4 really don't get into a whole lot of detail, but I promise you that the details that we did look into are going to be relevant in the chapters to come. If you want more, go ahead and rate and review this podcast and give it five stars if you can, because I still don't know how to get this on Apple Podcasts. If you like it, please tell a friend, because I need to become internet famous as fast as humanly possible, and I don't want to spend any money doing it. Follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL for news about new episodes. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's last days.